stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the Hello and welcome to episode 429 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And we will be joined shortly by a man who I can't imagine needs any introduction, uh, Isaac Ike Haxton. I presume he was in Malta, although I guess we didn't actually ask, but that's where he lives. Ike is making his triumphant return to the podcast after more than 10 years. And I don't remember, I know I said this, like, I don't remember if I said it on the air, but it, it's worth saying now. I've always had some regrets around the original uh, Ike interview that we did just because I was not, or neither Nate nor I, you know, were very experienced interviewers at the time. And I felt like we could have done it, but you know, it was such a, a big opportunity to talk to someone like Ike. And he was very generous in terms of answering our questions. And I just, after the fact, I was like, oh, I could have done better with that. And I, I've, that's been nagging at me for like 10 years. I'm sure he would have done this sooner. <laughs> it's not like he's been, you know, dodging us for 10 years. I hadn't asked, but um, we did finally uh, get him back on the, uh, on the show. It was a fantastic conversation and I feel much better about how the interview went this time so thank you carlos for your um your help with that oh no problem no problem i, I mean ike is one of the few people who had been on the show before me and so it was kind of cool to get a chance to um talk to him um when i didn't have an opportunity to talk to him the first time so thank you one of the things that I remembered thinking from that first interview that that made it tricky was that Ike was giving very short answers to things. And I realized, I think what was actually happening because he, he does, he pauses a lot and he's, I think it's just thoughtful. You know, he's like thinking yes. and, and giving long and thoughtful responses. I think what was actually happening was I was cutting him off because I was nervous. <laughs> and so he would, he would answer or start to answer and then was probably going to say more. And I was like, oh no, dead air. And I would like talk over, you know, just sort of interrupt him and ask something else. Um, so just w one example of how I, I feel like I've become better as an interviewer is letting silence linger a little bit. I mean, either in Ike's case where I think he was planning on saying more all along, but I, I think that's a good tactic sometimes anyway, is just if you ask someone a question and they give you a, a, a short or kind of a peremptory answer, you can sometimes prompt them to say more just by remaining quiet and they'll start to feel the awkwardness or this kind of like, oh, maybe I should say more about that. And it's a good way of just you know, getting people to dig a little bit deeper if you feel like you've only gotten a, a surface response from them. Like, I don't think that's what was happening in, in Ike's case, but it just had me reflecting on like one thing that I've learned about interviewing after doing this for uh, 10 plus years. Yeah, that's a really good, um, really good point. I think I'm going to go back and re-listen to the first interview to kind of compare because there's a very high probability that that is exactly what happened. <laughs> and with that being the case, uh, I'm very happy that we got another shot at it. And, 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 and I will say that uh, you did a lot better this time. Like that, that shows your growth as an interviewer is that you recognize that that leak, you fixed it. And because of that, we got a much better interview out of Ike this time. Actually, this is a, a good question for you, if it's not putting you too much on the spot. When when we started doing this, I know that one of uh, Nate's big influences was Tyler Cowan, who's also someone that I've listened to a, a fair bit since then at, at Nate's prompting. But um, I decided that I 
needed to try to listen to some people who were like good interviewers. And um, two of the people that I identified were uh, Terry Gross, who's on uh, Fresh Air on, on NPR, which I think a lot of people would be familiar with. I actually didn't end up listening to a lot of her because Mark Marin was one of the other people I identified who hosts the WTF podcast. I'd never heard it at the time, but I just like listened to it and fell in love with it. And I've listened to, I mean, I've, I don't listen to it quite as consistently anymore, but I've definitely listened to like more than half of the I don't know, 1200 plus episodes that he's done. Um, so I've listened to quite a lot. Some, some with you. I remember on, on our drive to um, Atlantic city, we listened to some WTF. Uh, I, I consider him one of the biggest influences on me as an interviewer. And I'm curious if there's anyone that you would point to as uh, influencing you as, as a host or an interviewer or anything like that. Andrew Brokus. not not to say that i'm learning much from your style because i'm not like actually focusing on it but i would say i mean of all the interviewers out there i mean you're the one that i've heard the most (laughs) so i'm pretty sure some of uh your style has uh, worn off on me but um besides you um i did used to listen to a lot of interviews with um tori I, I thought you were um, going to say Tori. I, I listened to some of him at your at your prompting. Yeah, Tori and also um, Malcolm Gladwell is another guy who I think is a very good interviewer. I haven't listened to them enough or uh, with the intention of uh, learning from their style, but just as people who I've heard do interviews that I enjoyed their style, I would say the three of you guys uh, are definitely my biggest influences. I feel like, and I think this does come up in in this interview that you and I have arrived at, at a dynamic where I'm usually asking the majority of the questions or, or kind of the one setting the the pace or whatever of of the interview, keeping it moving, and then you're like a little ninja who will just like <laughs> hop in with a, a, a like a deeper, but you know, something that gets the guest to like I, I think there's a few times I think the Ebony Kenny one is the best example of this but I think it happens in, in like and probably some other ones as well where like you just ask one thing that really lights them up or or gets them to like dig deeper or just makes the interview better in in some way so I, I think I, I ninja is the best metaphor I, I can think of for that but uh, I, I think it works out quite nicely. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely try to um, break it up a little bit with some different type of questions. And sometimes they're deeper and sometimes it's like comedic relief. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I definitely view that as my role on the show. So we'll talk to Ike about a lot of things. There is some strategy in there. We're not going to pass up the opportunity to talk strategy with Isaac Haxton, but we will also bring you a strategy episode with uh, just us two mooks. And if you would like to hear more of that kind of thing, you can get it at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily, which is also where this question is coming from. This was submitted to us by uh, Mike over on the Patreon. Mike says, this is a theory question. It's inspired by a specific hand. I don't want to talk too much about the strategy of the specific hand, but I'll share a few of the details just to eliminate the, um, the theory question that he's asking. So he's been playing this $200 tourney at Bally's in Blackhawk, Colorado for about three hours. Uh, There's been lots of pre-flop limps and calls at the table, a few wild players, a few old man coffee types. Uh, Mike is the short stack with about 22 blinds in the small blind, been pretty card dead all day. Under the Gun, who is the wildest of the wild, 
opens to two and a half blinds. And Mike says, I've seen this guy play every type of hand you can imagine from early position. Takes a lot of pride in playing loose aggressive, showing off, uh, has already been knocked out and rebought a few times. Also hit up some huge suck outs, so he has a big stack now. Middle position calls. This is a guy who wants to see damn near every flop. The button calls. He's a decent player, but a little too loose pre-flop. And our hero looks down at king-queen suited. He says the big blind is an old man coffee, so I'm not worried he's going to do anything other than um, either fold or complete if our hero just calls with king-queen suited. But Mike says, I'm pretty sure with 10 blinds already in the pot, I'm supposed to just jam. At a minimum, I should raise large, but I stupidly just call. And this is the main, I think it was one of the main questions is, you know, how can I work on my mental game to keep myself from being such a damn nit preflop? Because I think, I mean, I guess I can double check if you agree, but there's really no question there should be a shove, right? Definitely. Definitely. The way this game was described, like, this is not even the bottom of my jamming days yet. Like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm jamming and taking this down a lot preflop. I mean, truthfully, the way this is described, there's a fair chance you could jam any two cards profitably here. Yeah. But I think even without it, like if you didn't give me any of these reads and you were just like, oh, I have 22 blinds in the small blind right. with king-queen suited, under the gun raises, two people call. I don't need reads on any of them to shove king-queen suited. <laughs> like this is, yes. there's nothing remotely close about this. Agreed. I mean, in terms of how do you actually, and, and Mike knows that, so he doesn't need us to tell him that this should be a shove. The real question is, how do you get yourself to actually do this. And you know, he describes it as playing like a knit, which I don't think that's necessarily everyone's leak. So I mean I think that's that's number one is you need to have a conversation with yourself about why aren't you doing it? Like if you know that it's the right thing to do after the fact, why are you not doing it in the moment? I, I call these boneheaded mistakes, which is different from if you you don't do something just because you you don't know enough about poker or you hadn't thought about it or, you know, that's a, that's a different thing. You're just like, Oh, that's a concept that I was not familiar with. And so that's why I was not able to implement it. Cause I didn't know about it. But if it's the kind of thing where you can say after the fact, Oh yeah, this is clearly a mistake. I should have known better in the moment, but I didn't do it. Uh, I think the first step is because different people are going to have different answers to that question of why didn't you do it? And it sounds like in, in Mike's case, he, he's referring to nittiness. So I guess it's like a fear of what if I shove and lose here? Do you have any advice I guess first on, on that specific fear of busting out and not wanting to not wanting to shove. Two things I would say to this. Uh, one is something that I heard you say, which is this is the sort of fear that a lot of people have if they're on a short roll. Mm -hmm. And so I've heard you say, well, if you jam here and you run into a bigger hand, well, that's what bank rolls are for. And if this guy who's the wildest of the wild has bought in several times and Mike is in this very good game, and he has a proper bankroll, then that means he's, he too can buy in several times. Um, the only difference is he will be, each of his bust out sort of been profitable plays, or I'm assuming this guy's isn't. So part of Mike's fear here could be that he's on a short roll and that he's not going to rebuy if he sticks it in. So that's something I've seen from some players, including myself at different uh, stages of my career, is that they just want to play a lower variant style and they're not willing to uh, get the chips in. And what they may not realize, even though Mike realizes that a jam here is correct, he may not realize that that's actually the lower variance play is to put all your chips in where calling just feels like more of a safer thing to do. 
but it's actually not because it introduces way more variables uh, to the equation by allowing all these people to see the flop. Part of it could be just being on a short roll. Part of it could be thinking that calling is a safer play. Those are two thoughts that jump out uh, at me. The other thing is Mike describes, he says, but I stupidly just call. And and this is something I learned from you and also from your partner, Emily, is that you got to be careful about how you talk to yourself <laughs> in these spots. Like that, like those are like the, the biggest concerns I've um, gathered so far from this question. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I certainly was going to say the thing about bankroll, which is both, you know, what is your bankroll in general, or, you know, how, how much money do you have available for poker in general, but also what Tommy Angelo would call your pocket bankroll. Like how much did you bring with you? So, you know, maybe this, maybe Mike brought $400. And so he is ready to rebuy once. One, I think that's a bad expectation to set up for yourself. Like it's entirely possible that you could play well and need to rebuy four or five times. And I think you should be prepared to do that or I think it's worthwhile to be prepared to do that. Yeah. And for more info on this, check the R. Eagle episode that we did. Like this guy has been crushing <laughs> for years and he rebuys way more than anybody. So don't feel like rebuying is like a bad thing. Cause and maybe that's part of it. Because when Mike um described this player, he said that this guy's been playing every type of hand imaginable takes a lot of pride in playing loose, aggressive, and showing off. Knocked out and rebought a few times already. Hit some huge suckouts to chip up to a big stack. He says several things in there that I kind of feel like he meant with a negative connotation mm. of like suckouts and um, a lot of pride and um, playing loose, aggressive, and showing off. Like I agree that you know playing loose, aggressive is not bad, but like you know doing it with the intention to show off is kind of a, a bad thing. I think he also included being knocked out and rebound a few times. Like that one is not a bad thing if the guy's playing well. So if he's been knocked out and rebound a few times because he's playing badly, that's different. But I kind of feel like Mike might view rebound a bunch of times as a bad thing in general. Yeah. I think this is the other conversation to have with yourself, which is why are you actually playing poker? Like what is your objective when you come to play the tournament? And it kind of sounds like Mike's un... I don't even know if this is what he would say if you asked him that question, but like reading between the lines, it kind of feels to me like his objective is don't lose my chips or, you know, play for as long as I can without losing my chips or having to rebuy or something like that. And I mean, that, I, I, that kind of makes sense of thinking, well, the goal of a tournament is to not lose your chips, right? But not really. <laughs> the, the goal of a tournament is to make the most plus EV decision at every opportunity. You know, tournaments do incentivize you not to lose your chips a little bit more than cash games do, but that's not the number one goal. And this whole idea of trying to like play it safe, as you said, I mean, calling may not even be the safe play in this hand, but what you can do, you can reduce your chance of getting eliminated in a given hand. Like you can just fold and you're, you will definitely not get eliminated in this hand. That's not necessarily a safe play because the goal is not survive as many hands as possible. So what's happening when you don't accumulate chips, when you had an opportunity to make a very plus EV play like shoving here, 
you didn't win those chips and now you're not going to have those available in the future. And when something happens to you, either you know, it's unlucky or you make a mistake or whatever, like when you lose chips, having one chips in this hand and in other spots where you took risks is what gives you the room to lose chips in other spots. So the idea of like, I'm just going to be really nitty because that's safe. And I'd like, I'm, I'm just going to be very careful about not losing all my chips. Well, you're actually setting yourself up to lose all your chips because you, I mean, it's, it's poker. It's a, it is a gambling game. And like, at some point you're going to have to put your money in and, and no matter how, like, even if you wait for aces, aces can still get cracked, right? Or you can wait for kings and you can run into aces. There's lots of ways that you can put your money in in a way that feels very safe and can still result in you ultimately losing your chips. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you did anything wrong in that hand. But but like what would have been safer would have been for you to actually take risks earlier so that you had more of a, of a buffer. And like that's actually increasing your chances of surviving long-term. So the more that you come in it with the mindset of, I often use the analogy of, it's like you're solving a puzzle where your objective is, I'm just trying to make the right decision every time the action is on me. I'm not trying to focus on winning pots. I'm not trying to focus on winning the tournament. I'm not trying to focus on not losing my chips or lasting as long as I can or making day two or not being the first player eliminated or making it through the rebuy period. None of those things is the goal. The goal is make the best decision every time the action is on you. And I think that we all struggle to some degree with doing that. Like we all have some attachment to those other objectives that should not be our chief objective. But I think that saying explicit to yourself that that is the goal and evaluating your play after the fact in those terms is the way that you can kind of reinforce that and build that expectation for yourself in your own mind. Yeah. And it's really the only way to reach those other goals in the long term anyway. Yes. So that was that was question number one. Now, uh, he does just call. The big blind also calls. And we go to the flop with, I guess now, like 13 blinds uh, in, in the pot and like 20 in the hero stack. The flop is king of spades, 10 of clubs, seven of diamonds. He starts with a check, which I think is good, even though he's flopped well and he's shallow. Like this is a hand that you should fully be expecting to put your entire stack in now that you've flopped top pair. But I still think starting with a check is good. Um, you're not really in much danger. Like even the worst case scenario where checks around is not that bad for you. Mostly you want to give other people a chance to bet hands that are weaker than yours. So I think it's very good that he's checking here. Agreed. And the villain now bets 50 big blinds, which is enough to put everyone in. This is the under the gun wild man player who's, you know, takes pleasure in sucking out on people and stuff like that. Middle position folds, button folds. And Mike says, I know in this spot, I lose to all kinds of stuff that's in his range, but I also know in the moment that I totally fouled up pre-flop. The punchline is that I compound my stake by calling after I tank for like two minutes. And I would say the only mistake here is tanking for two minutes. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is a 100% a call. And I think if, if you're not recognizing that, part of it is, well, I mean, it comes back to why you should have shoved pre-flop, but you know, you're like the whole reason you're playing king-queen is because it is a hand that, you know, with a low SPR will play well when you flop top pair. So then like when you flop top pair, I know it's a little unexpected that this person is like betting huge into three people, but with the read that you have on him, like, I mean, who, who's to say he doesn't have King Jack or something where he thinks he has the best hand, but he's actually wrong. So this also feels to me like pretty results oriented thinking because the big, the, the villain does end up having King 10 for a flop two pair. And I'm assuming that uh, Mike gets eliminated here, which does under underscore the point about, you know, there's no safe, like calling and flopping top pair didn't make it any safer for you to put your money in. So, you know, there, there's not really a way to like play it safe, but um, yeah, I, I would not say that this is compounding your error. No, in fact, 
I would say Mike's initial comment, how can I not play like such a damn near pre-flop? He needs to consider that he might be playing like such a damn near post-flop. <laughs> damn near post-flop if he's thinking about folding this hand against a guy who is described as the wildest of the wildest of the wild, who takes a lot of pride in playing loose aggressive, sucking out and showing off. Like King Queen here is the nuts against this guy. Like he had King 10 this time, but just combinatorically, he's way more likely to have like Queen Jack or 9-8. Yeah, you're right, Andrew. Just the 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 only mistake I saw post-flop was the tanking. I mean, unless you want to slow roll the guy. <laughs> other, than that, other than that, if we're tanking and considering folding at all, yeah, we got some pretty big strategic leaks in our game more so than this mental game leak that leak that he thinks he has. Uh, but setting that aside, I think there is a good question here, which is how do you keep yourself from counting compounding mistakes if you do make a mistake pre-flop? So um, you know, you you play a hand that you shouldn't have or you realize you should have raised, but you just called. Um, how do you then keep from compounding that with more mistakes after the flop? You just recognize that if you're opening a hand that you shouldn't have opened, a call with a hand that you shouldn't have called with, then you should recognize that you are uh, at least pre-flop at the bottom of your range. And if the board doesn't help you in a significant way, understand that and going in. So be a little bit more willing to give up in, in spots. Also, like, don't feel like you have to throw good money after bad. I guess those two statements are basically the same thing. You don't want to... Because this is something I do sometimes, and I know it's a mistake on my part. If I find myself playing pre-flop with a hand that I should not play, I'm like quick to give up even with a hand that I probably shouldn't give up with. Hmm. Because sometimes, even if it's the bottom of, of my range pre-flop, it can make a pretty good hand post-flop. And um, I'll kind of like punish myself for the pre-flop mistake by making an extra nitty fold post-flop. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if the flop doesn't help you enough, but you feel like you have to, like you you, you say this thing like, oh, I can't win if I don't bet. Like you don't want to try to bluff your way out of, you know, uh, overly wide pre-flop range, especially in these games that tend to be populated with overly passive players. That's something I would say be on the lookout for. Um, but of course, none of this applies to Mike's situation. So like Mike's situation is kind of like the thing that I used to do. Like maybe if I thought I was supposed to jam this pre-flop, even if I knew it was a good call post-flop, I would just force myself to fold it to punch myself so that I wouldn't make the pre-flop mistake again. But that was, man, like 15 years ago. <laughs> so don't do that. But then also... Just recognize where you are in your range um, and act accordingly. Yeah, I think this harkens back to two things that we talked about in answer to the, the first half of the question, one of which is just having that that puzzle-solving mindset where you're starting from where you are. Um, you're not focused on the fact that you may have made a mistake at an earlier point. You're just saying, okay, I'm here now. I'm in the spot. I called the raise with this hand. And what is the best way to play it? 
so it's you're you're as much as possible you're trying to just like bracket whatever happened earlier and just say okay right now do i have a good hand yes or no like is this yeah. a hand that's good for betting is it good for calling is it good for folding what is it and you're right that if you know if it's, it was a two wide call pre-flop it's often going to be a fairly weak hand and the best thing you can do with it is you know give up uh, it's just like cut your losses but the objective is not to it's certainly not to like make up for the pre-flop mistake or punish yourself for the pre-flop mistake or anything like that i mean i actually think this has some similarity to like you know, you have kings and an ace flops or something, and people have trouble letting go of what happened earlier. And then, well, earlier this was a really good hand, so now I want to win the pot because I, <laughs> I, I thought I was going to win the pot pre-flop, and so they're like, now I still want to win it. And you just have to assess, like, you had a good hand, and now you don't when, when it's kings on an ace board, and you just have to sort of begin from, well, this is where I am now. What's the best thing I can do given given what I have? And that's the same thing that's going to happen if, if you played a hand you, you shouldn't have, or you played it in a different way than you should have. You just have to accept, you know, look, look at the situation you are currently in and try to evaluate it neutrally w without getting too attached to the, the fact that you made a mistake pre-flop. And I think that harkens back to the other thing that you said about, you know, like not calling yourself stupid or like not beating yourself up too much over the mistakes. In addition to just um, having some, some uh, grace for yourself. Is that how I've heard you put it before? Yes, yes, the definitely word I had in mind a second ago. Yes. So, in addition to, I think it's just generally good to have have that grace for yourself. I also think it's it's practical. Like it's not useful to beat yourself up in the moment for mistakes that you made, even if you want to try to like after the fact, when you get home or on the drive home or whatever, think about how can I avoid making that kind of mistake in, in the future? How can I learn from that? That's productive. But while you're playing as much as possible, you want to set aside your mistakes. And that includes, I mean, it certainly includes mistakes made in previous hands, where I'm sure we've all done this, where we know that we misplayed a hand and then we're sort of focusing on that and thinking about, oh, all the chips I would have had if I hadn't done that other thing. And then that leads to us playing other hands badly in the future. But I mean, even in the same hand, like the fact that you made a mistake pre-flop, as much as possible, you want to put that aside and say, okay, I'll worry about that later. Right now, I'm just trying to make the best decision I can, given that I am seeing the flop with this hand. And the more that you're focused on having done something stupid pre-flop or like you're, you're beating yourself up over that, I think you're hindering your ability to make good decisions going forwards. Very well said. Anything else that we want to uh, share with Mike here? I will just say, Mike, you have a great role model you can listen to coming up in this episode if you want to think about how to um, remove some of those mental game leaks. Like, So that's one of the things that came up in the Ike episode was like someone asked a question about how unflappable he is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Mike, uh, Ike is a great role model for us to like not let these things get to us too much. Yeah, and I think it's not a coincidence, or I guess I said this about last week's guest, but I think it's true of Ike as well. Um, so our, our guest last week was uh, Stephen Flavel, and I said that he reminded me of Tommy Angelo in terms of being very sort of like calm and measured and kind, not just kind to other people, but also kind to himself. And yes. I think Ike's a great example of that as well. And that's not a coincidence. <laughs> like that is part of cultivating a healthy mental game. Like Tommy Angelo is arguably the best mental game coach in, in the business or, or certainly one of the best. And that calmness and kindness, which includes forgiving mistakes, is a critical part of that. Right? It's it's not just like uh, Ike is a calm and kind person and he also has a really strong poker mental game. Like those things are very closely tied to one another. Yes, Definitely. All right. So uh, once again, if you would like to get your own questions answered and hear more strategy segments like this one, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily is the place to do that. Now, please enjoy our interview with the great Isaac Hexton. Oh, yeah. 
Isaac Haxton, welcome back to the Thinking Poker podcast. It has been far too long. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. You were one of our very first guests. I believe it was episode 18, which would make it uh, over 10 years ago since we had you on the show. You, you were a big get for us so early in, in the show. <laughs> I remember that. I, I remember the Airbnb in Vancouver that I recorded that from. That was fun. <laughs> And it's impressive because, I mean, you were a big get at the time because you were one of the best players in the world 10 years ago. And you are once again, uh, or still, I should say, not once again, you are still <laughs> one of the best players in the world 10 years later. What goes into staying on top for, for I mean, a lot of other people you know, who are, who are very good players from that era, some of them are, are still around. Um, some of them have stopped playing entirely. Some of them are, you know, arguably haven't, haven't uh, kept up quite as much. So, you know, what, what goes into um, keeping that up for as long as you have? I mean, I think the biggest factor has to just be how much I love it and just kind of wanting to do it every day, getting up and, you know, not really needing to, set myself a schedule and make time for playing and studying or anything like that, but just kind of, I get up and I want to play and study poker. And so I do, and you just keep doing it and hopefully stay good. <laughs> <laughs> How do you decide which one you're going to do on a given uh, day or, or hour or minutes, like studying versus playing? That used to be a much more difficult question when playing was a lot of grinding games that ran all day, every day. Now, the vast majority of my playing is scheduled. I mean, last year, virtually all of the poker I played was live tournaments. So when there are big live tournaments happening, I go play them. And when there are not, I spend my poker time studying. Yeah, it's, it's really just dictated by when the highest priority games are happening, I play. And when they're not, I don't. E even before I went to like the game selection, I've had the last year or two of exclusively live tournaments still like when there was some more live cash and online cash and stuff like that mixed in. Still, it was about like when there are super high priority games for me to be playing. I play and otherwise I study. How much of the playing exclusively live tournaments is, is just like, that's where the best opportunities now in terms of like high dollar value with people who are less good at poker than you are uh, versus like a concern about the you know, various cheating things that have happened online, at least some of which have you know, targeted the, uh, the like nosebleed community such as yourself. It's definitely a factor. You know, if I was looking at, the games that are running online right now and thinking I'm a hundred percent certain that those games are fair, that there's no RTA, no collusion, etc. I would be a lot more tempted to play than I actually am right now. At, at the same time, um, I played a lot online in 2020 and 2021 and some into 2022 and I did well. I think I got cheated a bunch at, you know, various scales and levels of severity. And I do think it's gotten worse over time. But I mean, it feels a little disingenuous to sit here and say that it just so happens that online poker became unbeatable right at the same time that I decided I wanted to start traveling around and playing live tournaments again. <laughs> right. um, 
and it was totally fine through the end of 2021. It's been on a trajectory of slowly getting worse for a long time for reasons that have to do with game integrity and and also lots of other stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a complicated question. It, it's not sorry, lots of other stuff being like difficulty or like kind of not not trusting the sites with the amount of money that you need to put on there or like what else would would it be besides game integrity? Well, I mean, my opponents who are playing fair have also gotten a lot better than they were in 2016. A lot of the time, you know, like starting in as early as maybe 2017 or 18 or earlier than that, even like I would be playing people at heads up, no limit. And I would regularly have the thought this person might be using RTA or they might just really be this good. It's perfectly possible to just be that good at heads up, no limit. All the solutions are there. You can study them and get really good. And like, to a very large extent, it's not possible to distinguish between somebody who's playing fair and is just great and somebody who's using RTA, but I don't want to play against either one. <laughs> <laughs> How much of your time now, like what, what's the split between playing and, and studying? Uh, and I guess traveling is, is probably a, a big chunk of your, your time as well. Sure, yeah. So I, I saw on Twitter before the episode that uh, there were a lot of questions about like live poker volume and ROI and stuff. So I, I did a little bit of adding things up in preparation. And it looks like I played 115 unique live tournaments last year. I think more of those took up more than one day than there were ones that I played multiple in a single day. So probably, I don't know, I must have played at least 130, 140 days of live tournament poker, probably a little more. So yeah, I, I guess I played live poker like 40% of the days last year, something like that. And on a day that I play live, I don't study a whole lot. I'll maybe review some hands in the morning or the evening. I'll like take notes as I'm playing of stuff I want to look at later. But I won't study a lot on those days. And then on days where I'm not playing, there were a lot of days last year where I didn't look at poker at all or almost at all. And then it's sort of hard to count like what is studying on the days that I'm not playing. Very clearly, if I just like sit down with some software for a few hours and study hands that I wrote down to look at later, that that's study hours or if i'm like setting up sims to run to look at later that that's study hours if i'm like watching a stream like I, I do try to go back and watch a pretty large percentage of the high stakes final tables with the people i play against all the time because it, it's a small field of people and you can get a lot of information on people who you're going to play a lot of hands against and, you know, sometimes I'm doing that very intensively and taking notes and stuff. Sometimes I'm doing that kind of half-heartedly while I'm cooking and not fully paying attention. And, like, maybe if I spot something that seems like a big deal, I'll pause and rewind and write something down. So, yeah, it's hard to add up the hours. But, like, or, like, just talking to people about poker strategy. I have a pretty large circle of people who I talk to about poker strategy from time to time. and like. Very often, that's like the most productive studying I do, but also it's not really organized and regimented. 
a lot of the uh, time. Uh, sometimes it is. You know, so, sometimes I, you know, schedule a study call with a friend or something, but more often it's just like somebody texts me, hey, what do you think about this? And then we talk about it for a while. I like how it's always them soliciting you for advice and not vice versa. Oh, no, 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 no. no I, I know, just the, the way you phrase it. If someone texts me to ask, like, <laughs> No, it d- definitely goes both ways. While, while you've got those numbers in front of you, uh, what, what types of win rates for MTTs do you think are uh, realistic in, in various various field sizes? I saw people asking about that, and I have so little confidence in my answer for anything outside of the highest stakes, smallest field stuff. I'm a pessimist about large field ROIs. It intuitively doesn't add up to me that people would be 100% ROI in a thousand player tournament, that kind of thing. Or like the main event ROIs that people quote doesn't feel right to me. But you know, when I have high conviction on my opinions, I bet on them. And it is possible to bet my opinions on for example, main event ROIs, and I haven't. I I am not letting people book extra of themselves in the main event at you know prevailing market rates. So, so I I think I have conceded that I don't get it, but the market knows better than I do in large field tournaments. <laughs> at the high stakes, you know, I I buy a decent amount of action in high roller tournaments, and I think I have a pretty good idea about. ROIs in fields up to maybe 100 or so players. And I'd say after Rake, it is rare but not unheard of to have a 15% ROI. I think 15% ROI inclusive of Rake happens in the best high stakes tournaments of the year. Maybe even a little more if you include like some of the weird invitational things and stuff. More typically, I think you're looking at like five to seven percent ROIs in a pretty decent two day high roller sort of thing or one day high roller. What are you what are you um, categorizing as a high roller? I assume like above 10 Ks. Yeah, above 10 Ks, basically. Gotcha. So would that include 10 Ks or just like these what I would call nosebleeds? primarily nosebleeds or like, you know, the the buy-in isn't actually the determining factor of the ROI. Um, It's the composition of the field and structure and stuff. And so a 10K at the Aria that gets 50 people is for all intents and purposes, a high roller and a 10K main event, like the world series main event or the WPT at the win or something like that, that gets thousands of people is not a high roller in in terms of ROI estimation. Right. That makes sense to me. I guess um, a 10K at the Aria versus a 50K at the Aria, like in my mind, those are like two different things. But if I guess if it's only like, you know, uh, 50 people in the 10K and then like maybe half of those are going to play the, the 50K, it's not going to be that big of a difference. Yeah. The, the difference between those two tournaments is much less than the difference between the RA 10K and a big field 10K that's like a WPT or World Series or something like that. Right. I would think also when you're dealing with such small field sizes, you know, whether or not like a single player plays could like meaningfully move that number if it, if it's the right player. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Basically, when I'm, I'm estimating ROI in a tournament, I'm thinking broadly in like three or four tiers of people who I'm treating as having roughly the same ROIs. That there's like the pretty good to great pros, the below average pros or very best amateurs who are around break even, the typical amateurs who are losing a moderate amount and the very special amateurs who are losing a huge amount. And when you're and you're just looking at the ratios of those groups of people, basically just kind of throw out the break-even players and the pretty good to great pros are chopping up the amount that the amateurs are losing. And when you're talking about a field of 50 players, uh, 30 of them are winning in the tournament, you add one or two more people who are losing big, yeah, it, it swings the ROIs quite substantially. I think you might want to be doing something like uh, tracking the movement of private jets around the world to you know, <laughs> try to get a sense of <laughs> when when the VIPs are showing up so you can buy up all the high stakes action before uh, the other people have a chance. Yeah, I mean, tracking the rumor mill of which tournaments are going to be good is definitely a, a real thing. <laughs> if, um, if, if you knew that in one of these tournaments uh it, it's it's too late to unregister but you know that your your starting table in one of these tournaments is going to consist exclusively of professionals um so these are all people who expect to have a positive roi in in the tournament we won't stipulate how high that roi is going to be uh would you rather that they all be uh 35 or older or younger than 35 younger for sure do you think that answer would have been different 10 years ago? Oh, absolutely. 10 years ago, I would have said, where are you finding eight people over 35? <laughs> <laughs> so the thing about poker being a young man's game, say young person's game, that was that was in part a function of, you know, 10 plus years ago when I guess all of us were, were kind of uh, getting into it coming up. Um, a lot of the older players were just kind of like, hopelessly old school and not even really trying to keep up. And I mean, would you say that that's been the big shift? There's just more, more people in that 35 plus cohort now who already knew a lot about poker uh, and, and are putting in the effort to stay on top. Like they were, they were kind of starting from a, a higher point than people of that age group 10 years ago. Not only that, but the latter kind of got pulled up after us. If I'm being honest, like, there was this really unique window of time from 2005 to 2010, roughly, where it was just so easy to run an initial deposit of 50 bucks or a free roll score, literally in a lot of cases, into a professional bankroll and to work your way up from having never played before to being a serious pro while making a lot of money when you're not even any good yet. Like it was just so much easier to get started as a poker player in that window than any time before or since. And I think we are still looking at the after effects of that, that to a pretty great extent that there's been this cohort of people who came up right around then people who are in their 
mid to late thirties now who were just in the right place at the right time to have a very easy entry into poker. And, you know, a whole lot of them have moved on to other things, but a bunch of stuck around too. And that there's really been a conspicuous glut of people right in that demographic who have stayed at the top of the game. And it's not only that like coming up then was super easy coming up then also I think kind of emphasized a broader diversity of skills than coming up now does because there were fewer answers available. You had to figure it out yourself and cobble things together from different sources and learn to collaborate with people uh, a lot more than you necessarily have to now. And I think in a lot of ways, those skills kind of gradually contribute to longevity over an extended poker career and, and help you get to the very highest level in ways that are not immediately apparent. If you've gotten started in the last few years after solvers have proliferated and you have the sense that getting good at poker is mainly learning to make the right play when you check later that it's solver approved. We were speculating uh, on, on a recent episode, and I think we got some of this from Sam Grafton. So maybe it wasn't entirely speculation, but you know what you just said about like being able to make a play that kind of accords with what could be considered solver approved uh, that some portion of the edge in the uh, you know when it is to kind of you know very top tier pros playing against one another is not just like who can better match the solver, but who can better push the game into areas that their opponent they 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 suspect their opponent has not studied that they will be more studied in, even if those are are kind of not technically solver approved, but are sort of like, within a very small margin of solver approved such that if you can play that spot better than your opponent, you can kind of overcome whatever you might be giving up in theory by making a, a slightly, you know, suboptimal at equilibrium kind of play. Is there, uh, is there anything there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Very, very often the best solver play or the best solver strategy for your range or whatever is infinitesimally better than many alternatives. You can kind of do whatever you want and it's fine. Sometimes missing the best solver play is a really big mistake. And yeah, I, I think that that's something that the best players, especially the best, the players who are best at playing against other very good players understand much better than most that, that like, Sort of the difference between making a little bit of an inaccurate play and making a costly blunder and how to lead their opponents into situations where they might make a costly blunder. Yeah, for sure. I've recently been getting into chess just uh, as sort of a hobby and as a fan. I enjoy following high-level chess as much or more than I enjoy actually playing it myself. And it's super clear how much of a thing that is in high-level chess that... You know, the game starts out as a draw and the computer has a favorite move on the first move or the fifth move or whatever down down the line. But there are quite a few moves that don't change the game from a draw to a loss. 
And you can play one of the, the less favored moves if you think it might take your opponent somewhere they're more likely to make a mistake that actually swings the game. High-level chess is just all about, not, not all, but very largely about trying to prepare things your opponents won't be expecting and take them into some territory where they might make a mistake. And poker is not nearly as much that way because, like, you know, you prepare something, you don't necessarily get the opportunity to do it. And that's sort of true in chess, too, but not nearly as much. So you, you have a lot more control over possibly getting the opportunity to surprise somebody in chess. In poker, like, I don't want to give the complete details of this, but there, there's a story that I like to tell about how um, a friend of mine discovered that there's a very unintuitive scenario where you actually get to play a bunch of leading from the big blind against an opener. And we went deep into like researching this together and came up with a bunch of ideas. And this was, I think, maybe three years ago. There's a spot where we're ready to play a really surprising lead from the big blind. <laughs> I don't think it's come up yet. Or if it has, we've forgotten to do it when it did. <laughs> this is a question from Cream Puff on Twitter, but it uh, it, it intersects with something we were just talking about. Which is, you know, if if you didn't have the opportunity to come up uh, the the easy route, uh, as it were, the, the, as you were just yeah. describing, you know, if if you were starting now and trying to get to a profession, even if not you know to the the nosebleeds, but trying to get to the the point where you know you're able to make a good living playing poker, a living that you were happy happy with, how would you go about doing that? Uh, in Cream Puff's words, from studying to shot taking, et cetera. It depends on so many things, but I, I'm guessing the idea here is I'm starting from a fairly typical entry into the poker world of like, I don't know what I know now at all. I, I am young with some aptitude, but not much knowledge and not very much money to work with. Yeah. Cream Puff is giving you a $5,000 bankroll. And I guess in terms of knowledge, it's sort of like you can you can point yourself in the right direction, but yeah, you don't know the things that you currently know. Right. I mean, with a five thousand dollar bankroll starting right now, I don't off the top of my head know what you want to be playing for the highest edge. I mean, I wouldn't be recommending that somebody go into full time poker on a five thousand dollar bankroll in all likelihood like that's not a lot of months of living expenses saved up if things don't go well right away i guess you you could say maybe the 5000 is on top of living expenses like that the 5000 is the poker money maybe you're playing part time and have your living situation taken care of more or less or you have a, a while of saved up sure yeah at that point it's two very different questions of like how to spend your time to improve as rapidly as possible versus how to spend your time to make some decent money as rapidly as possible. If the latter is a priority, like if you need to be earning a living with maybe not right away, but within a year or two, I think you want to be hunting around for a good spot online. Like, I don't know what that is today, but 
cash games on a smaller network, uh, depending on where you are, maybe like one of the regional ring fenced ones. Like it, it seems like a lot of people do pretty well at low stakes on, you know, the New Jersey sites or the Ontario sites or the Michigan sites or whatever. I think, yeah, you want to prioritize finding a very soft and probably secure enough small stakes online game where you can get a lot of volume in. Very possibly something other than Hold'em. If, you know, you have access to like a good five-card BLO game or something like that where the average skill level is going to be pretty low, that there's a good chance that's a great thing to be doing. In terms of like... If I were starting off there and wanted to get to, yeah, it it depends where you want to get to. If I wanted to get to like where I am now, yeah, you just have to put in a lot of hours getting good building holding tournaments. But that is not going to be the thing that makes you the most money for a long time. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much of being a successful poker pro is being in the right place at the right time as opposed to being really, really good. So... Yeah, I kind of think you have to prioritize the being in the right place at the right time thing if you are worried about making a good living on a limited bankroll on a relatively short time horizon. And that can just mean a lot of different things depending on where you are and what your skill set is and changes month to month and year to year. But yeah, hunting around for the good games is, I think, probably the most important thing in that respect. And I, you, you, you quickly jumped to cash games. So, would you not recommend this hypothetical hypothetical player play tournaments on that role? I mean, I, I'm not an expert on how to maximize your earn with a relatively small bankroll, but I would be surprised if that's the right idea. Low buy-in tournaments tend to be very large field. Large field tournaments tend to are always are very, very high variance. When your win rate is largely constrained by your bankroll, you want to grow your bankroll quickly and steadily. And tournaments are not the way to do that. Sit and goes, or even like multi-table sit and goes, where you can put in Big volume at consistent stakes, I think, are fine uh, and are actually a fantastic way to learn tournament strategy. Uh, I, I think the couple of years of my career where I played a big volume of sit and goes were very, very valuable to me. But yeah, I, I would be surprised if big field multi-table tournaments are the best way to be spending your time when you're dealing with a pretty limited bankroll and trying to grow it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, Andrew, I quickly want to go back to something Ike said said a second ago when he was talking about that that sweet spot um, when a lot of us got started. It seems like that was during the era <clears throat> from around the time of the poker boom to Black Friday. And, and the main thing that I kind of like, the word that keeps coming to mind when I hear you talk about um, this is networking. Like at that time, it was like a lot easier. You you heard of, you know, these poker groups uh, where guys just kind of like got together and, um, you know, got a house together and just talked poker with each other. Or, you know, another question that I saw in the in the Twitter thread uh, was about your time at um, Panorama Towers, yep. where I, 
Yeah, so like th those sort of opportunities for networking with other players was probably more prevalent during that time. So is that like the sort of thing that you think would be holding a, a younger player back these days? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I I honestly don't know that well how that all looks today. And, you know, I, I imagine there, there are opportunities for that kind of networking out there. But yeah, I, I for sure fell into... Um, a situation where I met a bunch of guys who have been my poker circle for a, a long time, you know, living at Panorama and, you know, playing tournaments in Vegas around that time and stuff like that. Yeah. Guys like, um, Justin Bonomo, Steve O'Dwyer, Scott Sieber. Well, Scott, Scott, I knew from college actually, even before that. This one comes from, um, I hope I'm going to pronounce this correctly. Tony Dunst. What is your favorite moment or memory from your poker career? I I guess it has to be the 2007 PCA final table. That was pretty special, pretty surreal. I was fully unprepared for that tournament to be as much of a big deal as it was. I had no expectation that I would go deep in it and not you know, visualized what it would be like to be at a WPT final table on TV or anything like that. It, it, just seemed like it came out of nowhere and you know, my mom and sisters flew down to watch the final table in person and my girlfriend who's now my wife was there for it and yeah it was a really strange and special moment that uh nothing before and not not much since has been similar to <laughs> i think that was like part of the the magic of that era was that you could show up at a tournament like that and not really be prepared. I mean, not that you weren't prepared, but you know, like I, 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 oh, no, I, I was not prepared. In any <laughs> I had just started playing no limit hold. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I had four years of experience playing limit hold under my belt. I was in no sense. prepared. <laughs> that, that answers my question. Cause I was going to ask like, how the hell is this your first hand in mob entry? <laughs> oh, I, I had turned 21 three months previous uh, I had played before that, I think one WPT at Foxwoods and a couple smaller stakes tournaments at Turning Stone that I had, hadn't cashed. I'd been playing No Limit Cash online for a few months at that point and a handful of tournaments. I, I fully did not know what I was doing. But like not a lot of people did. I mean, that was it, it was so new for everyone then. No, I mean, I, I wasn't, like, totally awful relative to the field at the time. I was, like, winning at 510 No Limit online with a very unsophisticated approach, but, like, it was good enough to win then. Poker was easy in 2007. <laughs> I mean, literally, my strategy was not far from, like, play some reasonable hands pre-flop, bet full pot every time it's your turn until you get raised and then give up. I bet you that still works in a lot of games today. <laughs> uh, so you warned me when, when I put this question on uh, 
when I put out on Twitter that we were going to be interviewing you and gave people the opportunity to ask questions, uh, you were kind enough before you retweeted it to warn me that if you retweeted it, uh, we were going to get a lot of like responses from from your haters. You know, a lot of them focusing on the like COVID stuff and and wearing a mask. It honestly, it was not that bad from what I saw. I don't know if Twitter just like it was not that bad. Yeah. Hid the worst of it from me. So I mean, I, I don't want to indulge a lot of the like stupid questions, but I do want to you know just give you a chance to talk about um, why are you wearing the mask. No, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. it. It's frankly been weird to me the extent to which no one does. It's like pretty conspicuous, right? Um, I'm over here snapping my fingers, but you can't see me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I continue to wear a mask because I continue to think that it's really worth quite a lot of effort to avoid getting COVID or get COVID as few times as possible. I think that we've reached a point of public near consensus that avoiding COVID is more trouble than it's worth. And people should just go back to how they were living in 2019 and I think that is frankly a mistake and not supported by the available evidence. And, you know, it, it's easy to see how we got to where we are. Trying to avoid COVID is inconvenient and disruptive to the economy, in many ways, imposes costs on capital, on wealthy and powerful people in particular. If, you know, you have to let your employees take enough time off of work when they get sick to avoid spreading COVID and, you know, improve ventilation in workplaces and provide for testing and masks and things like that so that people can work safely. That that all imposes a lot of cost on capital. So there's a lot of incentive for society to come to an understanding that actually it's fine to just get COVID all the time because the alternative is expensive. And that is where we've ended up. And on an individual level, it's really difficult to, you know, sort of buck the consensus that you perceive all around you. But I think that if you put that out of your mind and try to just engage directly with the data, the studies people are doing, the science that's been put out about specifically the long-term effects of COVID. It's not fully clear just how bad it is. And it can't be because it's bad on, it, it could be bad on a scale of decades. And we just couldn't possibly know that. But on balance, it looks like it's somewhere between bad and really horrifyingly bad to get COVID over and over again. Right. So, yeah, as much as possible, I'm really trying to avoid it. And, you know, we're now, it's been four years since the pandemic started. And I, don't want to completely put my life on hold. And this is an occasion to acknowledge my privilege in this, that my life is such that I can completely put it on hold 
if I want to. Uh, most people don't have that choice for various reasons. And I can be extremely cautious in ways that most people don't have the option to be. You know, a big one being like anybody I know who has kids, I mean. It's, it's impossible. It's just impossible. But also like I have a job where I can be choosy about when and where I work and I can wear the protective gear I want and I can't be fired. Not everybody has that privilege either. But yeah, so I mean, I, I am choosing to take some risk at this point, but really trying to manage it, minimize it. How has your experiences been? I mean, I, I so I just see like the, the Twitter side of it um, and you just get like random trolls on Twitter, but like when you're actually playing in a poker room, have you had you know, negative experiences or you know, how negative with uh, you know people giving you a hard time about it? Very few. The Twitter side of it is so much worse than the real world side of it. Well, first of all, those guys can't afford to play those games. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And from what I hear, it's not, it, it's much worse. Uh, other people are having worse experiences than I am for, I think, a few different reasons. Probably the biggest one is that overwhelmingly, I play high buy-in small field stuff where I have a personal relationship with most people in the field. These are my friends or at least like friendly acquaintances and they're not just going to like be rude to me for no reason. And even when I do like play large field stuff with people who I don't know, very often they know me even if I don't know them. And I think my status discourages people from antagonizing me. Because I, I do hear from other people who say that they get antagonized about wearing a mask regularly when they play big field tournaments with people they don't know and mid-stakes cash games with people they don't know and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've gotten not zero, but a pretty small amount of grief about the mask from the people I play with in person. Online, completely different story. I get yelled at by people who are upset about the mask or about me having opinions about COVID uh, all the time. But yeah, in person, virtually no open hostility. Have you ever gotten the sense that even if it wasn't open hostility, that it was bothering somebody and that that may even have played to your advantage, like that they were playing less well against you because they were sort of like bothered by you reminding them of COVID's existence? Yeah, maybe occasionally in like the more like main event type stuff that I play. I, I think I have encountered a handful of people who it was pretty clear that seeing a mask got under their skin a little and they were just not quite openly hostile, but like weird with me i do think it was kind of funny also um i mean i've had this thought before but it, it kind of crystallized when you were saying that the the biggest barrier to it is just the sort of the weirdness of being like the only person wearing one in a lot of spaces or one of one of the only 
people, uh, but that like everything else about it makes sense to you. And there's just the kind of like, well, but no one else is doing it. Maybe I'm the one who's, who's wrong kind of thing. But that um, you know, it, it used to be the thing to call people who are wearing masks sheep. And like now what you're describing is of course, profoundly anti-sheep behavior where like the, the sheepiness is like the thing that you're like fighting against <laughs> by, by still wearing it. it it's funny. I, I still get called a sheep on Twitter pretty right like get that I mean there's a lot of things you could call me like the hypochondriac would be, be plausible enough but sheep I, I mean I really don't think so <laughs> but yeah, I mean yes it does the feeling of being the only one still doing it is strange and uncomfortable for sure I understand why a lot of people who otherwise might wear a mask, might be more comfortable wearing a mask. Don't because looking weird is too uncomfortable. There's this really weird phenomenon that you can see in polling all the time. Fewer polls like this are being run these days, but in, you know, 2021, 2022, as mask mandates were being rolled back, over and over, you'd see this exact same thing in polls. They would ask, do you think there should be a mask mandate in general in public places or on the subway or in supermarkets or whatever? And you'd get like 60% yes. And then they'd ask, are you currently wearing a mask in the place in question? And you'd get like 20% yes. Quite a few people want everyone to be wearing a mask. Surprisingly, few people are willing to wear a mask when no one else is. Interesting. I mean, it, it, as of today, I think those numbers are probably pretty different. I don't think that mask mandates outside of maybe healthcare settings. I, I think mask mandates in hospitals are still pretty popular. But I, I think at this point, you'd probably get like, should masks be required on public transit? Like 5% of people are currently wearing them and 10% of people would like them to be required or something. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe the numbers aren't actually that low these days. I, I, I shouldn't guess, but they've clearly gone down. I can tell you as someone who recently had a family member in the hospital, even when there is a mask mandate in place, it is not a trivial thing to get the staff to uh, actually wear the mask. I'm sure. Yeah, I, it's yeah, it's very messed up. The spread of COVID in hospitals is just such a grim situation and the, the extent to which nobody with any power to do anything about it seems to care. The stats specifically on like how much your chance of dying before you leave the hospital goes up if you contract COVID while you're there are really bad. I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but like it really dramatically increases your chance of not making it out alive if you're already in the hospital for, say, a heart attack or cancer or whatever. You're in the hospital for something else and you catch COVID while you're there, which is happening constantly these days. It's really bad for your chances of making it out alive. A couple of years ago, uh, my grandmother went to the hospital for an unrelated thing, and she had to be there for like a month. And then during this time in ICU, and she was like 85 at the time, and I went to the hospital and was allowed to stay there with her overnight. 
for like, you know, several days in a row. Um, and I think I spent like, uh, I can't remember now. It might've been like three, three weeks doing this off and on. And I can remember one day going in and, and at the time she was unvaccinated because she got sick and in the hospital before she had an opportunity to get a vaccination. And I can remember going in and walking past like this hospital has like a Chick-fil-A in it. And this is in the South. So I go past this Chick-fil-A, go up to the room with her and I stay for three days. And when I come out, that Chick-fil-A has been converted to like COVID beds. Like that's how bad it was. And I was definitely afraid that she wasn't going to make it out of there. Oh, and so yeah. I understand exactly what you meant. Now she, she was lucky and she did make it out, but there were, and this wasn't even during the height of the pandemic. This was like end of 2021. And I was like, when people in the South give up Chick-fil-A, <laughs> you know it's, it's a bad. bad situation. You know it's bad. I was going to say one of the many things that uh, COVID sort of disillusioned me about was some things that I, I thought were sort of skills that people were acquiring from poker, like uh, understanding statistics and the number of you know, successful poker people that I know, not like random trolls, like successful poker players on Twitter saying things like, oh, it's only a one in a thousand chance of dying. Like that's a really high number. <laughs> what do you think your odds of dying are usually? Yeah. I'm trying to imagine like other things where you die one in a thousand times and how you would feel about doing them. It, it's not like getting in a car, it's like getting in a car crash. It's like oh, I don't like getting in a car. <laughs> uh so to wrap things up on, on a, at least a slightly uh, more positive note, this is a, a question from Matt Kagan that is maybe not completely unrelated. Um, is Ike as unflappable as he seems? He seems ice cold emotionless on the felt. Is he really emotionless or does he fight to keep the emotions down? I think mostly I'm, I'm actually that emotionless, uh, <laughs> at least in a poker context. Yeah, I mean, outside of poker, I certainly have my emotions, but... Yeah, even early on in poker, um, even before I was playing poker, I played other games pretty seriously. As a kid, I didn't really have to fight to not tilt or to not be overcome with grief after a loss and stuff like that. It's just never affected me very much. I, I think I'm just lucky to be built a certain way where I am able to care a lot about doing my best and giving myself the best chance to win that I can and then let the cards fall where they may. And if I don't win, I feel fine. I, I'm sort of, yeah, really focused on the process side of it, if that makes sense. And the, the rare occasions where I do find myself getting frustrated and distracted it's not because of losing or getting unlucky. It's when I screw up and feel bad about it. If I think I might have really screwed up, sometimes I can get stuck ruminating on that. And to to an extent, that gets distracting. And yeah, I mean, I occasionally have done things like quitting a very good game out of frustration because I made a mistake, even when it's like clearly a spot where I can just accept that I'm playing my B game today and stay and make a lot of money. 
I mean, like one in particular comes to mind where I was playing in a very, very good cash game. And I guess you would call it misreading the board. I was playing Omaha or better, and there were two low cards on the board. And I called the river and announced that I had the not low, which there was no low. There, there's no low possible. There's only two low cards on the board. It's not a possible hand to have. I had two, three on like ace, jack, nine, eight, ace. I just called the river with nothing. And it was an all-time great game. I should have stayed and played anyway. But I was just like, well, I guess I'm done. I can't read the board. I, I'm playing until my big blind and leaving. Um, speaking of uh, making mistakes, uh, this is a question I have for you. Um, how close would you guess the best players in the world get to GTO? Like I've heard this this um, percentage at around like five percent. Do you think that's too low or too high? Five percent of, of what? It, it's a pretty hard question to be very specific about what you mean, right? Right. So the best humans' understanding of what gto really looks like and this um i would say is probably going to be specific to like tournaments no limit tournaments i don't think we're even close enough to know what the thing we're comparing to is like if it was heads up no limit or heads up limit hold'em or something very clearly defined you could answer the question quite precisely what percentage of decisions do i make correctly how many bb per hundred do i lose to the solution um you could have a a really precise answer when it comes to no limit tournaments (laughs) we don't even know what we don't know what gto means for a three-player cash even i feel like this is an underappreciated fact in the poker world right now that like we have outputs for multiplayer poker they're not the answer right can't really even precisely describe what they are i i think very few people realize this but three-handed forehand three-handed plus ai outputs are black magic that there's math that works for two-player poker that provably converges toward the answer. And then we use the same math for three-plus-handed poker, and it doesn't work. It doesn't converge toward anything you can very precisely describe. It spits out an answer, and the answer looks pretty good. And I try to play like that. I think it's the best answer we have. (laughs) But... With two-player poker, like you can quantify how far we are from exact. You can calculate the exploitability of the solution. And this is because that game is solved. It's because the algorithm we have for solving it works. Right. <laughs> for three-handed poker, it sort of works, but we can't really say what that means. It, it spits out something pretty good. And then you add in the tournament component as well. And now you're taking the black magic of multiplayer (laughs) solutions and multiplying it by the ICM model, which is basically something invented for betting on horse races 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like, so five percent may be too high. We don't even know what to compare it to. Yeah, we we have these very very detailed outputs that are based on very very dubious inputs. <laughs> gotcha. That answers my question. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see where that goes over the next five, ten, twenty years. Like. We might weirdly be pretty close to pay people playing great while being incredibly far from like an actually rigorous description of what's going on. It's a very weird situation we find ourselves in at this point. I hope that gives the listeners hope that even the best players in the world know that they're far from playing this game uh, anywhere near perfectly. So, oh, yeah, we, we couldn't even describe what playing perfectly means. It, <laughs> it, 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 there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Is there anything else you guys were hoping to talk about that we have not gotten around to? Well, I was gonna, um, I'll take this opportunity to um uh, publicly thank Ike for helping me, uh, when he had no um reason to years ago when I was writing an article. Uh, about watching him play on the Poker Masters um, and trying to learn from the things that he was doing that I haven't seen other players do before and definitely not the players in my game. And so I wrote an article. It was primarily about bet sizing. Uh, Ike was one of the first people that I saw using like the bigger bet sizing from out of position. And so I wrote an article asking, basically trying to get into his head and explain why he was making these bet sizes. And he was kind enough to, you know, proofread the article for me and let me know that I kind of uh, had the right idea with what he was doing. And he didn't know me from Adam at that time. And so I definitely would like to thank Ike for um, helping me with the article because that, that was like a really cool thing to do. So thank you. Oh yeah. You're very welcome. That was fun and not much work at all and you know the association with andrews all their reason i need to take a few minutes out of my day to help out with something <laughs> I... we're quickly uh reversing polls to the point where uh I, i'm now gaining credibility through association with carlos <laughs> we actually had an experience pretty pretty early on in our in our friendship when um we went to pittsburgh uh no, sorry, he i was living in pittsburgh carlos uh came to pittsburgh and then we drove to atlantic city together to um play a tournament out there and uh there was a guy who we're, we're both still friends with um who wanted to buy us dinner uh, while we were there and I was like oh this would be great for Carlos he loves a free dinner and you know be because he's here with me he's going to benefit from getting to have a free dinner with this guy it quickly became clear this guy was far more excited to meet Carlos than he was to me <laughs> nice yeah the, the weirdest thing about it is I believe he uh, he called his daughter and was bragging that he was having dinner with me I was like oh, who right. is this yeah. guy yeah, yeah that's awesome yeah, but that was man, eleven years ago, and the three of us are all still good friends to this day. So, oh, that's really um, cool. Yeah, so shout out to Dan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Ike. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk to you again because I do. I mean, like I said, it, it was uh, it was exciting to have you on the show back when we did. But I also feel like uh, after doing this for ten years, I'm a lot better at it now. And when I look back at those early ones, I'm sort of like, ah, oh, there's so much, so much I could have done better. So, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This was good. Different from the usual uh, 
media stuff I get to do around poker. Uh, That's what we're going for. Going a lot more depth about more interesting things than uh, the typical, you know, three minute sideline reporting in a tournament or whatever. Yeah, hopefully that'll be enough to get us a GPI award this year where we, <laughs> where we finally got um, nominated for one. I say we have yes. only been the host of this show for um, going on a year now. I guess it's been a little bit more than a year. But, you no, know, it's been, it's been over two years. Really? Yeah. Jeez. COVID does that to you. <laughs> I, I was going to say it felt like it had been longer than that. But yeah, I agree. Uh, time has completely ceased to make any sense. Yeah. So. I'm keeping my fingers crossed this year for myself, Andrew, and also Nate Mavis, who was a previous host of the show. Host of the show. Hopefully they recognize the same thing that others have recognized about this show. Uh, you, you better uncross your fingers, because if we win, you're going to have to go to the award ceremony. I'm, I'm already preparing myself. <laughs> I'll be rooting for you. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Have a good night. You too. Okay. Good night. Bye. Of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.